are back for set two, excitement. So, uh, did you all enjoy set one? I hope you bought some books, because otherwise I'm going to come around with a dead frog and put it under your pillow. <laughs> that sounds bad, doesn't it? It will be rancid and mouldy. Uh, so, just to take your mind away from that really quite egregious image, uh, I'm going to introduce the first writer of set two. So, set two, we had, we had kind of memory in set one. Now, we're, we're just right here in the present, focusing on the visceral now. And the first writer who's going to take you right into his world is West Camel. He was born and bred in South London, and he's worked as a book and arts journalist and an, as editor at Dorky Archive Press, where he edited the Best European Fiction 2015 anthology. He currently combines his work as editor at Arenda Books with writing and editing for arts organizations, including editing the Riveter magazine for the Ur European Literature Network. He's written several short scripts and was long listed for the Old Vic's 12 Playwrights Project, so I suspect he knows how to do dialogue. Attended his first dialogue, uh, I beg your pardon, his first novel and was shortlisted for the P Polari First Book Prize. Please welcome to the stage, West Camel. Hello, hello. Uh, yes, my name's West Camel, which is actually a village in Somerset. I don't actually come from there, I come from South London, which is where my debut novel, Attend, is set. Um, I like to think of it as a mixture between social realism and magical realism. Um, so it's set in Deptford, so you get a lot of the council estates, the rundown areas, the street markets of Deptford. And in the middle of all of that um, is a woman who is maybe 100 years old, maybe a bit older, and she claims that she's immortal. Um, and when I was writing it, I started to find I was exploring ideas about sexuality, identity, and mortality. And I came across a question which could was, could um, the solution to infertility be immortality? So I might just leave you with that question and I'll get on with the extract. So um, here we have Sam, who's a young gay man who's come to London thinking the streets are paved with gold and sexy men and he's going to have a fine old time of it and is finding it's not quite like that. And he's just had a very difficult conversation with Deborah, the 100-year-old woman. I can't die. The ridiculous words came back to Sam as he walked through the market and became caught in a clutch of mothers and children clustered around a stall selling cheap toys. The stallholder seemed in a rush to get rid of the broad, rattling boxes. It's all kosher stuff, ladies, cut price, because it's my mother's birthday. I can't die, Deborah had said, then tried to collect herself, sniffing and blinking. He had almost stroked her arm, had almost said he believed her as she told him the ridiculous tale of a piece of sewing that could make someone immortal. But he had put his hands back in his lap and listened in silence. And then he had dashed back home to meet Derek, attacking him with a rough embrace and biting down on the muscle of his shoulder. Derek had grunted and laughed. In the couple of days since, those words, I can't die, had been repeating in his head, and Sam had ignored them. He had turned away as if he hadn't heard. 
But now, trapped beside the toy stool, they were suddenly louder, as if Deborah perched on his shoulder, shouting in his ear. None of the mothers around the stall seemed to see him. No one moved a pram or pulled their brats out of his way. He had to lay a flat hand on a woman's back to get himself out of the crowd. Like a struck match, his irritation flamed into anger. At Deborah, at her dull homemade clothes, her decrepit house, her insistence that no one paid her any attention. He strode past the backs of the stalls which were beginning to close up for the afternoon. Of course people saw her, and if they ignored her, it was her own fault with all the stupid stories she told. He closed his eyes for a second and shook his head. He had spent long, self-pitying days in his parents' house, standing at his bedroom window, gazing through the net curtain at the people passing on the road below. But he had left. Despite his troubles, he had left, and here he was, making it be at least a bit of a life. The air rang with shouts and clangs as people pulled apart the frames of their stalls, got in each other's way and loaded up their carts and vans. What would it be like to have a stall here? He had seen someone selling cloth. Perhaps someone at the warehouse could keep him, help him with stock. Perhaps Derek had a contact. And then he saw him. He was standing outside the Vietnamese supermarket with another man. The muscles of Sam's face twitched into a smile, and his throat prepared itself for words. He crossed the road, accelerating his pace, eager to touch Derek, if only his suited arm. But Derek was red-faced, his hand jerked up and down, and his voice was tight, fast. Sam slowed slightly, not sure how to, in how to interrupt. The other man was speaking now, We'll sort Nigel out for you, Derek. He's dead meat. He's pissed too many people off. His hand was on Derek's shoulder, shaking him firmly. The two men were strikingly similar, solid, with thick red necks under cropped hair. They wore suits of almost the same grey, their open neck shirts almost the same white. But unlike Derek, the other man's face was pale and round, his eyes large and green, his expression flat apart from a slight movement of his eyebrows that questioned Sam's interest as he approached. Sam's back prickled. And then Derek saw Sam. As their eyes met, it was as if Sam had climbed two steps and he let his smile open. But Derek's jaw hung loose and his thick eyelashes beat a stuttered rhythm. Then he switched his gaze back to his companion without a word or a nod wiping his hand over his face. Sam's smile was still in his cheeks, but it was a dumb grin now. He stumbled slightly, as if shoved back downstairs, and swaying away from the pair, his head, his heel slipped off the curb, jarring his whole body. He was capsized, tipped into gaspingly cold water. He could not quite control his limbs, Squeezing between two stalls, he tripped over bundles of unsold goods and then found himself stuck behind the market's rubbish truck. It crept inexorably forward, bleeping and flashing, its band of peons feeding its wide back jaw. There was no way around it. Derek had ignored him. 
He wanted to run. He'd been a fucking idiot. Of course he was just a bit on the side. A secret, mucky vice. Men like that pale-faced thug were the centre of Derek's world. He had no time for Sam. Sam wasn't even worth his attention. Why the fuck had he smiled? He lengthened his gait and accidentally clipped the shoulder of a woman who was moving slowly along. Her baby was slung on her back in a bright red and yellow wrap that matched her headscarf. And she was angling the child towards the rubbish truck as he gurgled in fascination. Sam grunted an apology, but the woman ignored him, beaming instead at her child's delight. So he rushed on, but now it seemed he had nowhere to rush to. Sweat spread in his armpits and in the middle of his chest. He was soon inside his building, and as he, and as he leaped up the stairs to his room, his phone chimed. He was sure it was Derek, but he resisted checking. He slammed his door, heart thumping, sending pulses up into his throat. He had to set his jaw to prevent himself from crying. He wanted to tell somebody this was anger, not hurt. But of course there was no one. Everything in the woman was, room was absolutely still. The curtains hung drearily. The bed was still unmade since the morning. A drawer was open, with limp socks and t-shirts trailing out. He went to the window and looked down at the estate and the backs of the Albury Street houses, almost expecting to see Deborah again, walking into someone else's backyard, thinking no one could see her. He leaned his forehead against the grubby glass. How had he done this? He had been here all, all of three weeks, and he'd become entwined with some nutty old sociopath and a local goon who had seduced him and then cast him aside, leaving him in the gutter. It was a nasty knot that was too tight to unpick. It would be best to simply cut it out and move on. Thank you. so much West. So uh, our next writer, Yara Rodriguez Faller, is a writer from South London. She is a trustee of Latin American Women's Age, an organization that runs the only two refuges in Europe for and by Latin American women. And her first novel, Stubborn Archivist, was published in 2019. It's been long listed for the D Dylan Thomas Prize, and last year, L Yara was also nominated for various other prizes, including the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year 2019. Uh, actually, I was in the LRB bookshop last week, and pride of place in the center of their table was an exciting young Latin American writer. And may I present Yara Rodriguez Fowler for your pleasure. Thanks for that lovely introduction. Is this all right? Oh, Ooh, yeah? I'm a little bit taller than you, I think. Um, yeah, are you having a good night? Yeah? <laughs> um, it's really nice to be here, because I grew up in uh, Balham. My school's in Tooting. And a lot of the book is set around here. And um, when I was a teenager, we used to always try and get into Hootenannies when we were <laughs> underage <laughs> and try and sneak in. Um, and the bouncers obviously really disliked us. Um, 
sometimes people would uh, climb over the back fence because it's a bit of a bush. Um, and then we'd get kicked out and we'd go to Mango Landing. I don't know if anyone remembers Mango Landing. <laughs> anyway, I think it's like luxury flats now, isn't it? Yeah, anyway. So, um, <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, the book, I'm going to read a really short bit. It's, um, it's like a bit experimental. It's got a lot of blank space and poetry. And it's got English and Portuguese. And it's about a family that's half in Brazil, half in the UK, which is like my family. Um, and it's all told, it's all about the women in the family, the grandma, the auntie, and it's kind of about their relationship to space and place and sexuality and all that shit. So um, the bit I'm going to read is, um, it's told from the mum's point of view and as if she's talking to the protagonist, her daughter. And I always read this bit now when I'm doing readings because it's important to just remind my English audience or my audience in England that um, Brazil has got a fascist president right now. Um, he's doing like everything he can to make sure that more like black Brazilians die, that more LGBTQ Brazilians die, women can't get abortions, um, indigenous people are dying. So um, that's, that's why I'm reading this bit. We were medical students living in the city. We had a lovely little apartment, me and Iggy and this guy called Alfredo. I must have been, what, 19 or 20? Duda had the most chaotic flat down the road in Villa Madalena, near the bridge that was this dusty pink color. Her flatmates were proper punks, like they used to steal my tapes from my car, and when I asked for them back, they said no, because I was studying to be a doctor and would have more income than them. Redistribute, they said. Anyway, Iggy is Iggy. You know Iggy. He lives in Salvador now. He works in psychiatry at the university, lives with his partner, Mauricio. But Alfredo, you don't know Alfredo. I lost touch with him 20 years ago. In fact, I don't know what happened to Alfredo. But Alfredo had just come to live with us. He came from a little town in the interior called Tatui, where he had trained to be a priest. Yes, he had trained to be a priest, went to priest seminary school, had the robes. He showed us pictures of him wearing the big Catholic robes, a teenager really, wearing big purple priest robes, but he left. I can't remember why, but anyway, he left. Maybe he just didn't like it, or maybe he fell in love with someone, but he left. He left and he came to São Paulo, which is where he met us. So Alfredo was new to the city. I can't even remember what he was doing. It was the early 80s. Everything was chaos, you know, the dictadura, and we were all students. So, you know, we were fighting, 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 fist in the air, clean water, free press, democracy, blah, blah. Me and Iggy and Alfredo wanted to do graffiti. Yes, paint messages all over the public walls, in secret at night, of course, because that was the only time that you could really do it. Those were difficult times. So we bought paint, and we had our black night clothes and things. I used to be very fit, you know, just like you, rode a bicycle, whatever. And we were all ready to go with our paint and black clothes in the middle of the night when little Alfredo said he did not want to come anymore. He was too scared. Poor Alfredo. 
he was new in the big city, and they were very scary times, very scary times if you were caught. Anyway. So we left the flat, me and Iggy. We said, that's okay, Alfredo. Bye-bye, Alfredo. We went out into the night. We had decided before that that we would paint political slogans and then poetry also. Because we read a lot of poetry as well as Marx and Engels and Lenin. Sometimes things are both, of course. There was a huge wall under the bridge near where we lived. It was a sort of late night dusty pink color. So we painted on it in huge black letters. Coraging, Alfredo. And it became like, what do you call it now? A meme? Lots of people saw it. Everybody saw it. It stayed there for ages, huge, big black letters across the wall under the bridge. Everybody in the city saw it. And people would say to each other, would say, and they would whisper, Coraging! Coraging, Alfredo! Thank you. Thank you so much, Yara. That was Yara Rodriguez Fowler. Uh, and you can obviously get her book in all the usual places. Uh, so, our next writer, Annabelle Banks, is an award winning writer of poetry and prose. Her work can be found in places such as the Manchester Review, Litro, the Stockholm Review, Under the Radar, and 3M, with recent commissions by the BBC and the University of Cambridge. She is going to be reading to you from her new short story collection. Exercises in Control, which is made up of different stories about how we control ourselves and how we seek to control others. So step outside your quotidian experience and look at the, the way that you're interacting with the people around you with Annabelle. Welcome. Hello. Um, I'm going to read a story called Common Codes. Uh, on the page, I think it'd be very easy for you to pick up that the character is male, but I know when you're hearing a female voice read, that can be different, so I thought I'd just let you know this is a story, the main character is a dude, okay? Common Codes. <clears throat> for this to make sense, you need to understand that I don't wear a watch. In fact, I never wear jewellery of any kind. My dad didn't, so I don't. I never queried it, just saw it as another passed-on prejudice, some crossed-out line on the blueprint of masculinity. So yeah, watches are dated, like lugging a typewriter around in case I want to write a letter, which I never do, incidentally. That's what PAs are for. I send emails from my phone, a device that never leaves my person and which also displays the, can you guess? Yeah, the time. So yeah, I don't wear a watch. Have you got that? Good. So when she slowed down outside the bank and cocked her head and inquired about the time, I shouldn't have looked at my wrist, right? But I did. And not just a glance, oh no, I gave her the whole shebang. First, a hand flick to bring up the jacket sleeve, then the shirt cuff pat, two fingers to slide the cotton aside, and then the final move, one finger extended to tap a dial that had quite honestly never been born. And in that moment, do you know what I was thinking? Alien invasion. Don't smile. Then I riffled through the better educated parts of my brain and I came up with the phrase learned behavior. Learned from the TV, all those films, the black and whites, you know the ones. I'm not a real fan, 
but I've seen the ones you're supposed to see. Like I've read the right books and I've looked at the right art and I've seen those films. And in those films, the actors suited smart mouth are either checking watches or kissing dames. Maybe that's what it was. She'd asked me the time and I thought about kissing her. And those two ideas had had kind of weird idea babies in my head. So yeah, I was thinking about kissing her, but only idly. I'm not some mad kiss stealer, but I'd caught the scent of her lip gloss, some sweet fruit stickiness, and it crossed my mind that if I kissed her, I would end up sticky sweet and I would lick my lips afterwards. I like sweet things, I reasoned, and I am hungry, and she is tall and fine. Then I did the wristwatch routine, revealing nothing but bare except for the hair skin. Crap, she noticed, of course, because she's a noticer. You forgot to put your watch on, she said. After a second of frantic scrabble mind to find some any uh, answer, I gave a weak smile. Oh, it, it must have fallen off. She pursed her temptingly lacquered lips and then said, expensive? No, I mean, not really. Oh, her brown eyes and that soft mouth. Something else was needed here, but it was my, I took a mental breath, father's, but he didn't wear a watch, as I've already mentioned. And lies can be fun, but not when they overwrite the memory of a dead parent. It was the only thing I had to remember my brother by, I said. Now, the only other thing that you need to know is that I don't have a brother. Only two sisters who greatly annoy me when they arrive for their once-a-year visit and who I love madly, weeping into their shoulders before they drive away. I'm so sorry, she touched my arm. That's terrible. When did he die? Now, you might think that that's a bit intrusive for a stranger to ask, but my actual response was, ah, here's a woman who's good with people. Because you know those bullshit courses? I've done them all. Good sandwiches, bad coffee. And they all say the same thing. Ask questions. Give room for the answers. Ask again and don't worry about rudeness. We all need the opportunity to speak. And if you're a sensitive commu communicator, which I am, then you feel it when you're overstepping. This woman, either a taut or natural emotion water temperature tester, was being kind. I thought of kissing her again, but only quickly. In my head, she liked it and asked for more but on the street she was still frowning and expectant. But I didn't feel like murdering my new brother. He didn't die, I said, we lost him. He went on a diving holiday in Mali, Madagascar, mm, Malaysia, and well, I suppose I just never heard from him again. I rubbed at my anxious cheek and only just my, uh, covered my lying mouth. He's not dead, the authorities assured us of that. He just wanted a new life, he just left us behind. Her eyebrows moved again. Such an expressive face, and I followed her thinking. Had we, as a, family, as a family, done something terrible? Was he escaping an abusive life? A brother who hated him, bullied him, perhaps, over a much-coveted and eventually stolen watch? I had to fix that. It's not that we weren't close, I went on, hand coming to rest over my heart. I love my brother, it's just that he had problems. Married very young, and she cheated, died. Don't judge, an in-law death I could cope with. The woman cocked her head again, but before she could inquire, oh, so gently about the details, I carried on speaking. Then the drugs, then the getting clean, and it was so hard on him. I think he'd had enough. He built a new world somewhere across the water. He always loved that. I f uh, looked up to stare over her head for a moment, feeling the truth of my next statement. He's always loved the sea. I sighed. She sighed. We went for coffee. I took her number. The lip gloss tasted like cherry sweets, just like I thought. And when I licked my lips, she laughed and said I looked like a wolf, which reminded me of a game I used to play at school. But that was it. Baby, she said, standing over me, I have such great news. 
My back had been giving me not so merry hell, and there is nothing that helps it more than lying on the floor. No pillow, nothing. I need a straight line for my spine to relax into so I can feel the nubs and sprockets clacking back into place. Oh, yeah, I said. Yeah. She slung her knee over me, sat astride, and then bent to put her mouth by my ear. I found your brother. I don't have a brother. The corona of hair, coconut-scented, concealed our faces. Kiss me, I said. She did, then gracefully rolled off to lay by my side. Don't say that, she murmured. You do. No. Her fingers wrapped mine. You know something? I think your sadness was the reason I gave you my number. Couldn't have you lose a brother, then a watch, then get blown out by some hot stranger. Who was that? I said. Did someone walk past when we were talking? She play slapped my thigh. Get up and get dressed, she ordered me. He'll be here soon. In the shower, lathered and aching, I made a plan to deny everything. This is another strategy they teach us at work. Delete emails, shred the memos, shrug and walk away. But my brother was too alive, was part of our relationship. Also, I am not a monster. I felt a little bad for this real-life person, that their evening's entertainment would soon be ruined by the blunt stupidity of truth. Their brother was gone, and my lie had made their pain worse. And yet, I reasoned as I rubbed my buttocks with a towel, it didn't have to ruin the evening. We could have a meal expressing sorrow, have a chat over rich pasta and white chocolate profiteroles. We could learn about each other and then say goodbye. I'd pick up the tab as a gesture. We could shake hands. This was my plan, and it was good. When he arrived, when Carl arrived, I should say, for that was his name, as I'd never given him one myself, it seemed as good as any, with his ironed dark blue shirt and bottle of good wine, he didn't even hesitate. You look the same, he said, and there was a tear, I swear to God, rolling down his cheek. I've missed you so much. He opened his arms and stepped forward. And that's when it happened. It felt like an alien invasion. was probably learned behavior. This monkey see, monkey do brain, this dance picker-upper, triggered mes- muscle memory of an action I've never performed. Because he'd opened his arms and stepped forward. Do you see? Can you picture that? This man, clean shirt, clean smell, white teeth, my height, was walking towards me with his arms open and a tear in his eye. And one moment I'm ready with the I'm so sorry's, and the next I was moving forward into the hug, face into his neck, fist thumping on his back, and my voice, my voice choked small, hoarse, with long held in weeping, muffled by skin and emotion, still spoke out loud enough for all to hear. Carl, it said, Carl, it's you. Thank you.